0: episode five of our construction law back to basics podcast series, a series of podcasts by Stevens and Bolton's construction and engineering team designed to provide listeners with an overview of the core construction law principles you need to be aware of throughout the key stages of a construction project. Whether you are procuring a professional team or looking to pursue a claim, Our series of podcasts hopes to provide you with a succinct summary of the practical points that need to be at the forefront of your mind as a project moves from conception to completion. I'm Lauren Melnick, an associate at Stevens and Bolton, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Johnny Farrell, who is also an associate in the construction and engineering team at Stevens and Bolton.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Um, So in today's podcast, we're going to be looking at completion of um, construction projects and how to bring your project to a successful conclusion. We'll touch upon how to reach practical completion or PC and the points to be aware of, the importance of um, the final account process and what happens if there is a need to terminate the contract early.
0: Yeah, thanks, Johnny. I think it's worth mentioning a small caveat before we start today, that we won't be looking at partial possession, which can result in deemed practical completion of parts of the site. There are circumstances where the employer can take partial possession of the site with the consent of the contractor and that has other implications such as insurance obligations shifting to the employer and or there may be a partial reduction in liquidated damages but today we won't be looking at these so practical completion under a building contract is a significant stage in a construction project due to the important implications that flow from it for both the contractor and the employer We'll look at each of these implications in turn. But firstly, Johnny, what does the term practical completion actually mean?
1: So perhaps surprisingly, there's no standard legal definition of practical practical completion, and many standard form contracts don't actually define it. Rather, it's left to the contract administrator or architect to decide whether the works have reached PC. Generally speaking, it's um, the point in the project at which works have um, Uh, which are complete, save for minor defects that can be put right without a large amount of interference to an occupier. However, there are a number of cases which have helped to um, interpret what the term PC means. One of these helpful cases is the Court of Appeal case of Mears and Costplan. In this case, the court reviewed and summarised a number of points about the term PC. So in this case, Justice Coulson noted um, a number of things. So firstly, practical completion is easier to recognize than define. There are no hard and fast rules. Secondly, the existence of latent defects can't prevent PC. In many ways, it's self-evident. If the defect is latent, nobody knows about it and it cannot therefore prevent the certifier from concluding that PC is achieved. And then in relation to patent defects. There's no big difference between an item of work, which is yet to be completed, such as an outstanding item, compared to an item of defective work, which requires to be remedied. Snagging lists can and usually will identify both types of item without distinction. And then moving on, the um, practical approach to PC can be summarized as a state of affairs in which the works have been completed free from patent defects other than those that can be ignored as trifling. So whether or not an item is trifling is a matter of fact or degree and this can be measured against the purpose of allowing the employer to take possession of the works and to use them as intended. However, just because say a house is capable of being inhabited or maybe a hotel is open for business, this will not always mean that they are practically complete. And then lastly, The mere fact that a defect is irremediable does not mean that the works are not practically complete and it's also worth noting that there may be other requirements under a particular contract which need to take place prior to PC being achieved.
0: Yes, it's always important to look at the specific contracts for these kind of provisions. Examples might be that certain testing processes need to be carried out prior to granting PC More particular documents might need to be provided to the employer such as collateral warranties or operation and maintenance manuals. This often includes requirements on getting the site ready for occupation and such as removal of all temporary buildings or machinery. If you're looking for a way to try and reduce the chances of issues arising in relation to PC being achieved, we recommend agreeing a clear definition of PC in the building contract at the beginning of the project which sets out all the requirements that must be achieved. So what actually happens at PC? So looking at the JCT design and build contract 2016 as an example, once the works have reached practical completion, there are a number of triggers under the contract. These include the end of any right to liquidate damages under the contract, the requirement for the employer to pay a percentage of the retention, the commencement of the defects liability period or rectification period, the insurance risk passes to the employer and any risk of damage transfers from contractor to employer the limitation period in relation to claims of breach of contract usually starts, and under the JST standard form contracts, PC trigger, triggers the final account process. So, Johnny, should we take a look at that final account process?
1: Yeah, sure. So the term final account refers to the consolidated statement concerning the amount of money we, to be paid at the end of the construction project. And this includes readjusting the con- original contract sum to take account of various items, such as variations, fluctuations, loss and expense, liquidated damages. And it may result in a sum being due from the employer to the contractor or vice versa.
0: It's not uncommon for disputes to arise out of the final account process. To mitigate this, ideally, this process should be kept on top of during the life cycle of the project, as it makes it a lot easier to agree the final account if it's not left until the very end. The parties will need to agree the final account, which typically will then trigger the need to issue a final certificate. The exact requirements in respect to the final account will depend on the particular form of contract. But under most standard form contracts, the final account procedure involves issuing a final certificate or final statement, which formally records the sum due to or from the contractor. The final certificate or final statement may also be conclusive evidence as to certain matters, like all patent defects having been remedied or that the standard of workmanship was to reasonable satisfaction. Some contracts do in fact stipulate time periods for closing out of the final account. and It's therefore really important to be aware of your contract terms and ensure that the timeframes are followed again, looking at the JST design and build 2016 as an example. It also states that if the contractor does not submit its final statement within three months of PC, the employer may give the contractor notice that unless the statement is submitted within two months, the employer can make their own assessment. In some cases, it might be that the employer and the contractor decide to instead reach a deal at the end of a project and that would be based on commercial compromise of their respective entitlements. Johnny, could you tell us whether this could create issues?
1: The contract wording will usually require a certificate to be issued um, reflecting what is actually due under the contract and therefore reaching a deal will not actually satisfy this obligation. In these circumstances, the the certifier is unable to certify that the sum is the amount due under the contract but it's rather a settlement of the contract. If If you wish to reach a deal then, it's advisable to record this settlement by other means so that it brings various contractual matters to a conclusion and it makes clear that it replaces the final account procedure in the contract.
0: Yeah, that's a really good tip for avoiding disputes later down the line. Lastly, then, let's touch upon what you need to do in circumstances when you need to terminate the contract early. There might be a variety of reasons of this. So, Johnny, can you talk us through some examples?
1: Sure. So, I think the most common reason we see is um, termination um, is termination for breach of contract. Um, so, in the contract itself, we would usually expect to see a contractual provision allowing for termination in certain of certain circumstances, such as material breach of the contract. The benefit of having a contractual provision is that there is less room for uncertainty as to whether the circumstances have arisen which would justify termination compared to terminating at common law for repudiated breach. Um, And a few other common reasons we see employers terminating include termination in the event of insolvency or where the contractor has suspended the works without cause or where the contractor has failed to proceed with the works regularly and diligently. And in some cases, the termina- termination provisions might include a clause which allows the defaulting party an opportunity to rectify their default. It's less common um, for a party to have a right to terminate an agreement at any time. However, it can be help- helpful for a party to have this flexibility. So Lauren, what do you think the key advice is for someone who um, wants to terminate the contract early?
0: Well, I think most importantly parties need to make sure that they are aware of the notice requirements that are set out in their particular contract. Notice requirements are so important because if a party purports to terminate the contract and doesn't follow the contract provisions, the termination is ineffective and in fact this is a repudiatory breach of contract. The other party would then be entitled to terminate and claim damages. Prior to exercising any right of termination, we would recommend seeking specialist legal advice to make sure that any termination is handled correctly and could not give rise to a dispute. Parties should also be aware of any agreed consequences of termination. For example, it's common for parties to agree that the contractor must clear the site and leave the works in a safe standard.
1: And on that note, there will of course be times where disputes are unavoidable, and Lauren, you and Claire Perry and um, we will be discussing that in the next podcast, I understand.
0: Yeah, exactly. So please do join us for episode six, where Claire Perry and I will be discussing inbuilt contractual mechanisms for dispute resolution, what happens in the absence of an express contractual mechanism and an overview of adjudication, litigation and arbitration as forms of dispute resolution. So I think that just leaves us to say thank you for tuning in today and listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or would like any further information on what we've discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch with myself or Johnny or your usual Stevens and Bolton contact.
1: Thanks all for listening and have a great day.
0: Bye.